It's a special weekend. It's a holiday weekend. We know it as Labor Day weekend. It's a Monday holiday that people have picnics, enjoy being outside, sort of the last gasp of summer break for some people. What does Labor Day have to do with the Bible? More than we might think. Let's review first our passage, especially the beginning four imperatives that we start out with, this overall context of let love be genuine, which sounds poetic and beautiful, but when you think about the ramifications of those words, this is hard. Let love be genuine. And then these other three imperatives, hate, hold fast, outdo. What is it we're to hate? People that are different than we are? Hate what is evil. Hold fast to those things we enjoy doing, to the people who are like us. Hold fast to what is good. Outdo. Georgia Tech. Outdo Clemson. Outdo, you can name all these competitive ideas. In fact, outdo one another in showing honor. Let's take these four imperatives, especially this last one for a moment, this idea of competition. We can call it actually redemptive competition. Competing with one another in how we treat one another as blessed ones, passing along blessing. We said last week that the word, the ancient word namaste, that comes from Sanskrit, this ancient language in India, namaste means all that is holy within me greets and blesses all that is holy within you, which is pretty neat if you think about it. It's an acknowledgement that I'm special, but so are you. And we can greet that specialness that is within one another and acknowledge the fact that, biblically speaking, God is at work in you and in me. And let's acknowledge that and tap into that. This idea of competing in redemptive ways, outdo one another in showing honor, really stands as a foundation for all that follows in these these verses that flesh out really the bones of these four imperatives. Let love be genuine. Hate what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Outdo one another in showing honor. Let's take a quick journey through time for just a moment and see some biblical foundations of how this really started in our biblical tradition and still is calling upon us to take seriously how this works today in our lives, especially from this passage in Romans chapter 12. So here goes our our journey. This is an actual photograph from the fourth chapter of Genesis. 
on the far left, you see Cain bent over his crop and Abel standing with his staff ready to be what? He's a shepherd. In the fourth chapter of Genesis, there is a subtle acknowledgement of competition between farmers, Cain, and herders, shepherds, Abel. Abel was a herder of flocks, sheep and goats, and Cain was a tender of the ground, that is, a farmer. The acknowledgement in this biblical story, there was tension in other ways, but it, it, a lot of scholars say that this is really sort of a, an admission, an acknowledgement of the reality in the ancient world. That fascinatingly, about 10,000 years ago, people like you and me stumbled upon the fact, the reality, that we could actually have some semblance of control over our food production. What had people done prior to the discovery of farming? They were just wandering, looking for berries and grain and anything that just happened from the landscape that was growing. And somehow, about 10,000 years ago, people figured out they could take seeds and plant them in some sort of ordered way and develop what we know today as farming techniques that completely transformed the way human beings began to interact with one another. It was an amazing thing 10,000 years ago where agriculture began to actually move through this social fabric of what's called the Fertile Crescent. And specifically in this area known as Sumer, 10,000 years ago, this agricultural revolution began to, to move through that part of the world. And it was further transformed by the fact that people realized not only could they plant seeds and actually have crops that they could harvest, but they could even allow those crops to develop in areas that previously had been too dry. They could take channels from the Tigris and the Euphrates rivers in the Fertile Crescent and they could form irrigation, irrigation canals, and all year round, they could have as many as three, sometimes four different crops a year. This happened a little later in Mesoamerica, around 7,000 years ago, also in China and in India around 7,000 years ago. But it was Sumer, this area in modern-day Iraq, right on the Persian Gulf, where all this began. And it was a, an incredible revolution in human history. It allowed people like you and me to be able now to have blueberries from Chile in January. All this started with the people of Mesopotamia in the area of Sumer. It allowed for this cultivation of land that was very exciting. It also allowed for a new development. When you have more food available, you are more comfortable, you are able to have more children, and your population begins to grow, which is a good thing until you begin to realize with growing population, you need more land under cultivation. That began to create a real tension between the herders who had just been allowing their sheep and their goats to just 
eat whatever they wanted, wherever they wanted. Now, all of a sudden, sheep and goats start invading cultivated land. Now, how many of you have gardens? And some of you have squirrels and rabbits. And a few of you may have neighborhood dogs who invade your space, and you come out and you think, what am I going to do? And it gets worse and worse, and you start feeling pretty aggravated. Now, Cain and Abel had this competition for other reasons in the fourth chapter of Genesis, but a lot of scholars say the real competition that is alluded to here is the farmers who are getting increasingly angry, that is Cain, with the herders, Abel, who were just allowing their sheep to invade cultivated land, and these farmers had been working so hard, and they come out in the morning, and all of a sudden, their whole crop has been eaten by a bunch of sheep and goats. So, this competition results in a horrible thing in the fourth chapter of Genesis. The farmer, Cain, kills the shepherd, Abel. This is an acknowledgement in the fourth chapter of this competition that happens within the human community way too often. And it's happening here in Sumer. And by the way, who in our Bible came from Sumer? The capital city in Sumer was known as Ur. Any guesses you want to shout out? You'll be on television. Abraham. Abraham was born and was raised in Ur, in Sumer, where all this incredible new stuff was happening, this cultivation of crops, this, this now new need for something even more than an ordered society where farmers are kept in one area and herders are kept in another area. What now happens with this tension between social groups is the need for something new. And in Sumer, in this Ur of the area where Abraham came from, we have this incredible new thing known as writing. Writing here is Sumerian cuneiform, which is a, a result from this agricultural revolution where in the area where Abraham was from, people began to realize we've got to get some kind of order here. We've got to start keeping records and figure out who is allocated to what, uh, who, is, who is supposed to have this and who is supposed to have that. In other words, you begin to get an ordered society where some people are classified in this way and other people are classified in another way. And you begin to have some who have more stuff than other people. And the record keeper, keeping, while very important, also serves to begin to have some culture making taking place. That is, stories begin to be told about what the culture stands for and who's in charge and who's important and who's not important. And the tension now expands from what had been farmers and herders to those who produce stuff and those who own the production capabilities of the stuff that's produced. It's a fascinating development of our human story that has both the remarkable goodness of having agricultural production that allows us to not starve in the winter, to know that we can have an abundant food supply, to know that we can rely on on these 
different means of production and to know that behind the scenes there are some tensions that need to be taken very seriously. Which brings us to our Roman conundrum. The issues that Paul is having to address. We know from this incredibly beautiful chapter 12 of Romans, sometimes known as the the mini Sermon on the Mount or the encapsulation of the Sermon on the Mount. What Paul is doing is simply restating the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 5 through 7 that we know is the Sermon on the Mount and, and putting them, as Mark said so beautifully, really in bullet point form that just is listing all the ways we need to try to treat one another in redemptive interactions. So the Romans conundrum really stems from this early church tension that has all the same kinds of tensions that you and I feel right now today. We mentioned last week the importance and gave some historical characters and perspectives on on racial justice. Well, today the real focus that is, is lingering and woven into both the Romans passage and especially the Exodus chapter three passage is economic justice. What happens in Exodus chapter 3 is very clear. God hears the cries of the Israelite people. Why? Because they were being oppressed by the Egyptian system that was taking advantage of their labor. They had lost their humanity. They had lost their dignity. And they were being seen as nothing but means of production owned by other people. This is a serious problem that the Bible is trying to address and in Romans and in 1st and 2nd Corinthians, it's even more obvious if, you've, if you read those two letters that Paul sends to the Corinthian church, it's very explicit that there were rich people in that congregation and there were poor people in that congregation. And there were people in that church who worked for some of the people in the same church who they had been feeling taken advantage of. And Paul is having to address that repeatedly throughout 1st and 2nd Corinthians. In Romans, it's a little more subtle. It's really, don't think of others as less than yourself. Don't think of yourself as better than other people. This is both a message that is told to Gentiles and Jews where a lot of the tension was lying, but it also had very much to do with people who had more stuff than other people, people who were controlling the means of production that other people were involved in. It's one that our church history, especially in Baptist life, has taken very seriously. Uh, The the, uh, person I'd like to highlight, one of two today, from our church history is Walter Rauschenbusch. Some of you are familiar with him. He actually was a Baptist who was extremely influential in what was called the Gilded Age. Some of you have heard of the Gilded Age. Every now and then the Gilded Age is referred to as the perfect time that represents that moment in American history. There are economists today who refer back to the Gilded Age and say there were no regulations and this is the way it should be today. Because what those non-regulations allowed was for the Vanderbilts and the Carnegies and the J.P. Morgans to do amazing things. And then they could give lots of stuff to libraries and schools and even churches with the Rockefellers. The problem is, while they were making all their money 
and controlling production in all their various industries, they had people working for them who were barely surviving, who couldn't feed their children. Walter Rauschenbusch began to realize somebody needs to do something. And in 1914, right on the tail end of the Gilded Age, he wrote, dare we be Christians? How about we start following Jesus? And he was specifically addressing Protestants in the United States saying, how can we allow this to happen? People who are living near us are not living on a living wage. They, they are starving. Someone needs to do something, and it's not just helping those who are suffering, but actually addressing the system that is creating the oppression that continues this horrible situation for people who are in our churches suffering mightily. It was in 1917 that he wrote his most transformative work that still is known and quoted today, A Theology for the Social Gospel. Some of you have heard this terminology before. The social gospel often is a, a phrase that we use when we think in terms of, well, we need to just help people who are struggling. We need to uh, offer them a uh, hand up. That's the way we live out our faith. What Rauschenbusch said was much bigger than that. As Christians, followers of Jesus, we need to do what Jesus would do if he were right here. Not only reach out to those who are hurting and treat them as brothers and sisters, but speak to the powerful and tell the truth. This is wrong. Someone needs to do something. And his influence was broad and powerful. We can give thanks to Rauschenbusch for a lot of the reforms that took place in a variety of different industries, allowing those like the J.P. Morgans and the Vanderbilts and all these extraordinarily wealthy people who had formed monopolies in their industries to suddenly have those monopolies now starting to be regulated. Which, of course, regulation is a really mixed term today. But in those days, it was essential to try to help bring some kind of economic justice in a land where things had gone, gotten horribly out of control. To illustrate that further, some of you have been to New York City, and perhaps you've seen in New York City some of these sites. These are called armories. Sometimes today we refer to them as National Guard armories. And they're the coolest looking things. You drive through New York and all of a sudden you see, what do these things look like? Castles or fortresses. In fact, that's exactly what they were intended to look like. Those that had these built and spent millions of dollars building these were some of the industry leaders who were very concerned about people like Walter Rauschenbusch and the woman we're going to talk about in just a second, who were helping people gather together and protest unjust living conditions and unjust wages and protesting for living wages. These were established as fortresses within the city of New York to push back against these protests, specifically this one in New York City. Notice these turrets. If you look carefully at the, the slide here, you see that the, the turrets have windows and the windows can raise, be raised. And they were specifically designed as, does anybody want to guess what these were for? These were gun turrets. 
where the National Guard had, these, had the ability to actually fire down on the crowds that were gathering to protest unjust wages and unjust living conditions. Rashid Bush and Dorothy Day, who we're going to talk about now, were, were both pacifists, and they advocated peaceful protesting and peaceful attempts at trying to have their voices heard. Dorothy Day was a Catholic. Walter Rashid Bush was a Baptist, speaking primarily to Protestants. Dorothy Day was a Catholic, but she didn't start out that way. She began as an atheist. She was an anarchist. She was just against everything, and in, in her own autobiography, she said, I was always angry at everybody because there were so many things wrong and there was so much that needed to be done and it was overwhelming. In fact, in 1917, the, first, the same year that Walter Rauschenbusch published A Social Gospel, she was arrested for protesting unjust wages and horrible living conditions for folks in New York City. In 1924, she had a conversion experience. She began to see the world in completely different, with completely different eyes. She began to experience a sense of God's spirit within her and a power of being able to now navigate the, the difficulty of the time she was living in, but with an eye towards justice and hope and faith and love. And she lived that out in ways that helped people begin to feel like they weren't alone. She was so influential, she later was canonized, or is in the process of being canonized by the Catholic Church as a servant of the gospel through the Catholic Church, giving her life uh, even to the point where uh, she was arrested again when she was 75 years old in 1980, or 1975, because of the conditions that she was still seeing that needed to be protested. She took Romans 12, as did Rauschenbusch, as a mandate for her and for Christians to stand firm in the gospel, to let love be genuine, to try to figure out how do we live out what Jesus is telling us, to hate what is evil, to hold fast to what is good and right, and to outdo one another in that beautiful competitive spirit of showing honor to those around us on behalf of the gospel of Jesus Christ. May it be so now, today, with us as well. Amen.